Welcome back to the Drew Lizzie Podcast. This is Season 15, Episode 2. In today's episode, I'll be talking with Rosie Lefebvre about the Drupal-powered Islandora Document Asset Management System. Before we get to that interview, let me tell you a little bit about Drupal Easy's long-form training courses. Our beginner-focused Drupal Career Online course is now in its 12th year, and we have graduated hundreds of students during that time frame. Class sizes are limited to no more than 12 students. That class runs twice a week for 12 weeks starting August 28th. You can learn more about that at drupaleasy.com DCO. Our second long-form Drupal training course is our professional module development course. The full version of the course is 90 hours over 15 weeks, or we have a light version, which is 60 hours over 10 weeks, with both versions meeting twice a week. In this course, we cover things like developer tools, dependency injection, custom plugins, caching, and PHP unit tests. During the course, we focus on writing two custom modules that make external API calls, use and define an event subscriber, custom service class, and more. We have received some great feedback about this course. One student from last semester said, and I quote, This course provided tons of hands-on practice with many Drupal APIs and best practices like writing automated tests. Class begins August 2nd for the full version and a few weeks later for the light version. To learn more, just go to drupaleasy.com slash PMD. Welcome, Rosie Lefebvre, to the Drupal Easy podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Rosie, we're going to be talking about Islandora, which is a digital asset management system built in Drupal. Yeah. Um, a lot of times you see the abbreviation of DAM or a, a DAM system. I guess is that the proper way of saying it? Yeah, that's what we call it. Um, a lot of times we use the word repository, but that can be a lot misleading because obviously lots of people have code repositories and other places and things like that. But uh, yeah, technically we are digital asset management or often what you create with Islandora is a digital repository. Right. For documents. And where a document is in the most generic form. Absolutely. Any binary, really. Okay. All right. Before we get to that, because we are, I want to kind of define what a document asset management system is a little bit more than than what you just did. Um, You are a librarian at the University of Prince Edward Island. Do I have that right? That's right. All right. A member of the Drupal community. And I do want to mention, so Islandora is, uh, it's built on Drupal 9. Yep. Currently. Um, I imagine there's efforts to move that to Drupal 10. Absolutely. Okay. We'll say ongoing. On the way. (laughs) I don't want to get into the weeds with any of that stuff. Uh, But let's take a step back and kind of define, because I know for me, I've never actually implemented a dam. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read about them a bunch. I've seen them in action, but let's kind of define like not only what it is, but what are some of the more common use cases? Like who would need a document asset management system? Sure. Digital asset management system. It's probably easiest to give some examples. So the university where I work, we've digitized close to a hundred years of an old newspaper, the newspaper of record on PEI, the Guardian. And so you can go and browse year by year and by day, all the different, you know, all the, all the content that's in that newspaper. So people love this for doing local history stuff, um, for reading the obituaries, other things like that. And one of the cool things about Islandora is you get some great stuff for free. So when you upload the scan, 
we have systems that send it out and uh, it does optical character recognition or OCR. So once it comes back, your newspaper has selectable text and you can just, uh, you know, copy and paste that or uh, search within the newspaper for what you're looking for. Yeah, I want to get to that bit in a minute because sure. that's the part that kind of blows my mind about these systems. Yeah. So you and I met in person at DrupalCon uh, Pittsburgh a few weeks ago to talk about this. And you mentioned an acronym, which I had never heard, which was GLAM. Oh, yeah. It was gl- an organi- I guess GLAM organizations are uh, often have a need for a, a digital asset management system. So go ahead and define GLAM. GLAM stands for Galleries, Libraries, Archives, and Museums. So you can also say Cultural Heritage Institutions. Um, a lot of times, if you're working there, you'll want to digitize some stuff, put it online, make some sort of exhibit, either you know highly curated like with a little walkthrough, or even just a whole pile of, of thousands or hundreds of thousands of items that people can peruse at their at their leisure. Right. So we need something that's scalable. Um, we need something that can look really nice. Um, and that's where I think Drupal comes in because all of the theming and stuff that works with Drupal can work with Islandora. And we need something that can handle any type of file that you throw at it. So we're focusing on, you know, audio, video, but you can build, you can pretty much build any functionality with any type of file that you want to to store in there. So it would be we don't have it right now, but it would be fairly straightforward to build a viewer for 3D objects and use that to show, you know, 3D models in an Islandora. I think when I first started learning about dams, I assumed somewhat incorrectly, I know this now, looking back, <laughs> that they were basically focused around uh, you would upload a document, a PDF, let's say, and the dam would basically keep track of revisions. Like every time there's a new revision to that PDF, you can upload a new revision and and maybe leave a note about it. And it would kind of keep track of what the revisions were. Kind of not totally unlike what the you know the Drupal core revision system does. Right. But where things really kick the door open for me, and this I want to dig into this part a bit, and I'm excited about it, so I don't want to get there too fast, is derivatives. Sure. What happens when the file gets uploaded and things that you can do with it. Um, which is really interesting. And what Islandora gives you kind of built in is, is pretty amazing. But that's a tease. So before we get to that, okay. I do want to talk about a couple of the, or a few of the modules that Islandora uses. Yeah. One of them that I was really surprised to see in a Drupal 9 context was the context module. Oh, really? That's hilarious. Well, those of us who have been around for a while and have built you know, pre Drupal eight sites for a long time, like context module. That was a, that was a, that was a main go-to in Drupal seven and before. Yeah. I haven't, I don't know if I've implemented at all for modern Drupal sites, you know, Drupal eight, nine, and 10, but it looks to be a pretty important part of Islandora. Well, we have, we, we use contexts to run all of our, if this, then that kind of logic. And I don't remember the precise reasons why it was chosen other than rules. Um, but you know, we had, we looked at those, both of those, I think as we were moving to Drupal eight, and I think that around Drupal eight was when context was chosen. And so we've written a lot of code extensions of plugins for contexts, and we've written some, some logic that uses hooks to make certain contexts execute when they normally wouldn't. And so it's because of all of that inertia that we've put into context that we haven't moved to something else. I think ECA might be the one that's uh, sure. that's hot right now. 
but I can definitely see us transitioning to that as I think context might be one of our sticking points in moving towards Drupal 10. Well, I did notice that there's a stable release for Drupal 9, which I'm, I'm assuming that's the one that Islandor is currently using. And there is a, I don't know if it's an alpha or a beta release for context for Drupal 10, but it was just kind of, it warmed my heart a bit to know that context kind of still lives <laughs> and that there's still active development apparently going on with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's funny, a lot of the modules that I'm looking at, especially for um, for Drupal 10 compatibility are in alpha. And I feel like yeah. a few years ago, people used to have releases a lot more often of their Drupal modules and things would be green covered by that security shield. But yeah. I'm seeing that less and less these days, which is interesting. I feel like sometimes in the Drupal community, we go through these phases where people are almost afraid to make a full release Yeah, because then they're somehow more responsible. Beholden, yeah. Beholden, yeah. So the other module I want to talk about is, real quick is Fly System. Sure. So I have a lot of familiarity with the S3FS module. Okay, yeah. Which is kind of like a specific use case, right? That, that basically allows your Drupal site to use Amazon S3 for its files directory. Right. Fly System is a more kind of open model mm -hmm. uh, where Fly System can connect, it can provide that same service for Amazon S3, but also for a number of other file systems. Yeah. And I think I know of people within the Islandora community who are using Fly System to store things in S3 um, and other places rather than the Fedora repository that we have as default. Right. And we were talking before we recorded, and I'm going to correct you since you corrected me, Fedora Commons Great. repository. Is that the technical yep. name for it, I guess? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'm not so much correcting you as just trying to show off the, my, my newfound knowledge that, that you recently bestowed upon me. <laughs> All right, so let's kind of let's get into like the, the the crux of what Islandora does. So let's use the example that you brought up of you know scanned images of newspaper pages sure. from 50 years ago or ho however long. So one would take a scan JPEG or whatever it is. Yeah. Upload it to Islandora as a node. Yep. Um, or as a media item on a node, I think is probably. That's how we do it. Yeah. We uh, we first make a node for the kind of conceptual object of this page. And all then the you, metadata, right? Yep. And then you add a media, and there's where you upload your file, your your big TIFF file. It's like 40 megabytes. Or... And then magic happens. Yeah. And the magic, and I'll just introduce the magic and I'll let you talk about it. Um, the magic is in. This, the site can be created to automatically create derivatives of that uploaded document. That's right. That TIFF, as you're saying. And those derivatives can provide additional metadata about that document. And the one, I guess the obvious one for a, a TIFF file of a, of a newspaper page would be automatically read the text on that and save that text into something that's more searchable using an, an OCR plugin or something like that. Yeah, so yeah, so talk about that and take us through some, some what are the available plugins? At, well, maybe plugins isn't the best word, but some examples of derivatives that are created from different file types. Sure. I'll try to stay top level and not get too much into the weeds here right, right off the bat. But we have a system of microservices. And because Islandora came from Prince Edward Island, our mascot is a lobster. And so we've named things in certain ways. So Crayfish is our suite of microservices, and they're all just PHP programs. And 
we, in order to talk to them in a scalable way, um, we've got a queue that kind of sits in between. And then to connect that queue to the microservices, we have a Apache Camel-based middleware service that we call Alpaca. It is basically the one that takes those, you know, so once you upload your TIFF and you save your, your media, during that save hook, a context can be executed. And if that context includes an action, such as OCR my file, then a message will be put into the queue. And then Alpaca reads from the queue and sends it to the appropriate microservice. So we've got a few. I'll try to remember all of them. Hypercube is the name of our, <laughs> whatever these these names. I'll, I always get confused because we've got these special names for the programs that run. So Tesseract, of course, is the OCR software that we use. And it's pretty well known. And so that's where we're doing the fourth dimension jump. Uh, we got Hypercube, we call it. I'll try not to go into the rest. Oh, I see. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> We've got one that wraps FFmpeg, and we use that for our audio and our video derivatives. So wait, I'm going to ask a question about that because I was wondering about okay, this as well. Okay, yeah. So let's say a video is uploaded. Sure. So FFmpeg is used to what, extract audio to make the audio available separate from the video? or, or is Oh, it... that's a great idea. Do you want to implement that? We would definitely take a pull request. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do that yet. Um, what we've done is we transcode it down to a web-friendly MP4. Okay. So if you're sending up something that hasn't already, you know, like a, a raw WAV file, or, you know, if you, because if you want uh, your preservation object to be uh, a non-compressed video, then you can let you can let uh, FFmpeg do that compression for you, so that people can watch it on, on stream it stream it online. How about text extraction from that from a video? Is that we haven't put that in yet, but it wasn't very long ago that there was this. Um, a new system was announced for like for audio files, so we'd have to probably extract the audio, get an audio, and put that up there. But yeah, some some pretty great leaps have been have been had in like text extraction from audio that I think it would be really great if we could implement. But we haven't done that yet. Let's go back to the example, the newspaper uh, tip sure. example. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Extract the text from a page. Yep. Um, so that becomes searchable and and part of the the, the node metadata. You gave me another example when we were talking in Pittsburgh that was text extraction with uh, like the, the placement of that text on the page. Right. You mention that for me? Sure. So this, the schema that we use is called HOCR. I'm not sure what the H stands for, <laughs> but it is an XML format and every element includes placement information. And so it's really, it's pretty straightforward to have a viewer display that text kind of as an overlay on top of the image and all the text will line up with what it was read underneath. And so that allows somebody to come in, if they're using a screen reader, they can read the text as it is. They can also select the text and copy it. And we can also, if we wanted to, use that as our, feed that into the search system. We use solar. So there's also, I know that image magic is used as well. I'm assuming that is just for re-encoding or images in a different format, more web-friendly format. Yeah, for sure. Um, or for a more easily downloadable format, like we might make a JPEG of your of your big TIFF file or something like that. Um, and it also makes thumbnails, okay. which is useful, although Drupal already makes thumbnails out of images. But un unfortunately, it's still necessary for us to do this for things like TIFFs, like the large TIFF files, or JPEG 2000s, because they don't work with Drupal's basic image library. 
yeah, you can't you can't make an image and add a JP or JP two to it. It just it won't not a compatible file type. And then another one in there is uh, a PDF to text, which is, is pretty obvious what that does as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what I found really interesting about this is that if we go back to the top, a new node is created. Yep. Metadata is is entered. The document, whatever that whatever that digital document is, gets uploaded. Yeah. And then as these derivatives are created, they're basically created as, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but additional media items on that node. Yep. Right? So when you go to look at one of those nodes, there, there is a listing that basically shows the original uploaded item. And then here is a more web-friendly version of that item, whether it be a, a video or, a, or, a, or an image. Here is the the text that it has been extracted from this item. That's right. And, and so it kind of shows you all of the derivatives that have been created for this for this item. And then in addition, we talked about, again, in Pittsburgh, the fact that nodes can be related to one another. Yeah. And I guess using your newspaper example, I'm just going to take a guess here, but you could have like a, you know, a January 31st, 1950 mm-hmm. newspaper mm-hmm. and that that newspaper will have multiple pages. Yes. Each of those scanned pages is a node yes. that are related to the that that issue or whatever they call that. Do and I have then that you probably there? put your January 30 issue into some sort of collection that is all of the issues of that newspaper that you have. Right. Oh, okay. So it goes it goes bigger too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's that's very cool. One other bit I want to mention about these uh, the nodes the, these uh, these document nodes is you showed me the ability to. Uh, that the site can automatically generate citations. Yes. So talk about that for a moment, because I thought that was super valuable. Sure. Um, So this is a kind of contributed module by our friends at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and it uses the BibSites library uh, from the BibSite module and creates a mapping so that you can say, so for this content type, whether it's article, page, or something else, here's how all my fields in that node map over to the citation parameters. So that's author, publisher, date, things like that. So once you've made that mapping, we've got a little block that we've placed and you can select one of several different citation styles. So whether you want MLA or APA or Chicago or something else, you can cut, you can upload the the CSL style sheets into like BibSite's way of doing that. And then it, yeah, it displays a copyable citation for you. And they're, they're usually pretty good. That's pretty cool. I do want to mention a couple other contributed modules. Mm-hmm. Well, actually not specific contributed modules. I think hopefully you'll be able to tell me which ones, but this is just from my notes from when we talked. Uh, I thought it was really interesting the way that Islandora can handle fuzzy dates. Yes. So are there, is that strictly contributed modules or some, some custom stuff as well? Maybe give some examples as well. Yeah, no, that's a module called Controlled Access Terms, which is a bit of a, a bit of library jargon. Um, we'll put it. Essentially, the module focuses on the idea of using taxonomy terms as what we in the library world call controlled vocabularies. So it creates a few different file types and, or sorry, field types. A couple of them are more focused on managing those taxonomies, but one of them is 
called EDTF date. Um, and EDTF, extended date time format, is a specification from the Library of Congress that was designed for people like me, librarians, to look at a book and code the date on it. And so it could be like 1922. You know, in Drupal, to have a date field, you'd need to say 1922-01-01. But if all you have is that year, then we need a way to just enter that year. So it's in a sense like partial date. I don't know if that module is still around in Drupal, but it was in Drupal 7. And what EDTF date allows you to do is not only, you know, truncate your date at some point. So you could have a year or a year and a month, but you can also kind of fuzz out some digits. So you could say like 1992X, and that would be sometime within the 1920s. You can also indicate with some symbols like a tilde or a, I believe, question mark. I might be wrong about that. That a date is uncertain or approximate. And so the EDTF module is really great because it allows you to save all these all this complicated schema. It validates it so that it makes sure that you're using all these indicators correctly. And then it also has a plugin for solar so that you can have a date facet that's based on these kind of fuzzy dates and uh, it will it will negotiate some of the uncertainty so if you've got like yeah. 192x it will have you know all dates within the 1920s or something so that's already understood by the indexer so you can make yourself a date facet which is of course something that libraries love to have displayed on our content you know which date range do you want to see from that is wild we also talked about enhanced reference fields so reference fields with some additional metadata on it. Yeah, we call it a typed relation. I think this is what we were talking about, where, you know, when you're talking about a book or something, you might want to record the author and the editor and the publisher and then illustrator and any number of people in any number of roles. But to create enough fields in Drupal to hold all of those would have been insane. So instead of doing that, we put a little drop down beside this, beside the place where you record the name and the drop down contains what we call the relationship or the relation. And so what we, you know, we have a big list that includes all those ones that I mentioned, as well as a whole bunch of others, Appellee and some legalese stuff and, you know, creator of the index and stuff like that. Is that a contributor module or is that part of, is that a custom? This field type is part of controlled access terms. And when you're implementing the site, you can set up what you want the options to be for the relationships. Yeah. And this is one of those things where, I, you know, at least I will, would have to like play with it to like fully, fully grasp. But yeah, I did want to ask about those two things. I thought those two things were super interesting. So another contributor module, or maybe it's a set of contributor modules that Islandora takes advantage of is Workbench. Yeah. So you want to talk about that and the workflow stuff a little bit? All right. I guess I would be remiss if I didn't talk about one of the big workhorses that goes with Islandora. Um, and that is a Python script called Islandora Workbench. And it's developed by a member of the Islandora community, actually happens to be the chair of the board. And it is a tool for ingesting large amounts of data into Drupal. So we know everyone's familiar with Drupal Migrate and how fun it is to write YAML files and pipelines. And this bypasses all of that. So you can just take a, a CSV, a spreadsheet of your values. It could be you know, a CSV file or it can be a Google sheet. 
and then you set up some config options and you run Workbench. It first checks all of your data to make sure that it's okay, you know, that it conforms to whatever field type you're trying to put it in. And then it goes and runs and, as we say, ingests all your content. And the, the reason that we have this is that, like I was mentioning, a lot of the times in the Glam community, we've got tons and tons of data to do. So adding content one piece at a time would be really ridiculous. And we don't always have the kind of developers on hand who are ready to help guide you through migration. So Island or a Workbench, you just, it's Python, you download it onto your computer, or if you want to like put it on a server, that's that's a little bit closer there. And it will bring in all of your files, it'll attach them to your nodes properly, and it'll add all the metadata that you want to your nodes. So this has been an incredibly powerful tool and it's really well, it's very responsive. So if you have a bug or run into something, the creator of this module just like seems like every night he'll like fix the things that came up that day with it. So we are extremely lucky to have it. And it is, yeah, it's a pretty fantastic tool that's, you know, outside of Drupal, but really works with Drupal and integrates well with with Drupal's field types and and other things. So is there a, like a sample... CSV file to like for folks to like kind of like a template for folks to use to get started with it or yeah you can actually you can build one out of your own site I mean you can look at the the documentation and it might provide a few examples the main I guess the main thing is that when you are creating your CSV you need a column for ID and then columns um, take the field name in Drupal so field underscore body or field underscore date underscore issued and then there are there are also a few reserved fields that do special things within within Drupal and Islandora. So with Workbench, I mean Workbench is, you know, it's used often for you know, like the editorial process. Right. So this is a different thing. The Islandora Workbench has no relation to the Drupal Workbench. Oh, okay. That's yeah. my mis- my confusion there. No, okay. that's okay. It's hard. There aren't enough words. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's take a step back. I mean, I actually have clients and I'm sure a lot of people listening have clients where this could be very potentially, you know, could be potentially useful. How would one get started? Because it seems like there's a lot of pieces here. I know that if you go to, you know, drupal.org slash project slash Islandora, it kind of directs you over to the GitHub. Sure, sure. But even if, you know, you clone the project locally um, you mentioned a bunch of microservices. Like, what what is involved in like getting kind of the basic install up and running? You know, are the are the content types already there for you, kind of fleshed out, and maybe just need, you know, do they? Is it one of those things where the set that you get out of the box is a pretty useful set for most applications, or you know, kind of like what's that look like? Well, we try we try to make it that way. I guess if you're starting out, start at islandora.ca. Our project page on GitHub or on on Drupal.org or on GitHub are probably not the best places to start with because they're really deep into the weeds with things. So from our islandora.ca website, you can go to get a demo. Get Islandora is the big button. Mm-hmm. There is a if you want to just play with it, there's a live demo. So we have an online sandbox. Or if you want a copy on your own machine, there is a desktop Docker demo. That is the least code way to install Islandora. It uses Docker. It uses a Docker 
plugin called Portainer. And then you get kind of an all-in-one, there's your Islandora. But it's not very easy to code with. So if you're planning on going in there and installing modules and stuff, I'd suggest using either our Ansible playbook or our Docker, what we call Isle, I-S-L-E, the Docker installation. And it's a little bit more thorough. You do need to open the command line in order to run Isle, but it launches up your Islandora, your Drupal, your Fedora, and all your microservices as containers that are all connected to each other. Right. That's what I was, that was the question I was about to ask. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that stuff, all of those microservices are out of the box designed to run on the same server or... You don't have to. I mean, the idea of going for microservices in the first place was that they could be remote. Well, I'm from a development standpoint, right? Like if someone wanted to play with this, they could set this up. Yeah. On their machine, use all in, all one, in one, have all the ha, you know, have all the microservices available and just have everything work. Yeah. And then are there any like video walkthroughs introductory level that you would recommend for folks if they're maybe they're not ready to install but they do want to see like how it works and what it looks like and if you answer no you've That's probably got a, a week or two before great question i know i'm well, like got i've got my, my answer podcast is... to get one done <laughs> <laughs> i'll do that and i'll collect them i mean we've been making video content and recording screencasts and doing other things for years and years and so they're just all in various locations right now so I can probably find something for you, but I'll have to check how out of date it is. Otherwise, of course, I could just make some. Well, because I think that's what folks new to digital asset management systems or even microservices or, you know, there's there's like a, not a fear of the unknown, but a how much time is this going to actually take me to get up and running on my local unknown, right? Right. And I think it's very helpful for folks to be able to just see, see the process, like, Oh, all I need need to do to get started is, you know, these six steps and I can watch the screencast with someone doing them so I can kind of take the the fear and the unknown out of it. Yeah. That's a great idea. Um, that's kind of what I'm going for. Is like how can people yeah, how can people who are listening to this podcast and intrigued by what Islandora can do? I mean, the live sandbox is fantastic, but you know, if you're going to implement this for a client, you kind of need to be a little bit more comfortable with it than using a live sandbox, obviously. So yeah, exactly. like how do we get over that, that, that second hurdle, so to speak? Uh, well, join the community, I think would be my, my answer for that. So we've got a very active Slack workspace and we have a mailing list on Google groups. Is Slack, is that in the Drupal community Slack as well? We no, we don't. I mean, we cross pollinate sometimes, but we have our Islandora Slack. Okay, and we can find the URL to that and stuff on Islandora.ca. I assume that's right. Yep. All right, fantastic. Uh, did we miss anything? I mean, I, I feel I feel pretty good about you know that we covered everything I, I was hoping we were going to cover, and yeah, hopefully we've, yeah. we've gotten folks the information they need to know if they're interested in something like this or not. Sure. Well, I guess. Yeah, I do want to mention that we've got a few interest groups um, that are pretty active within Islandora. So one for documentation, one for metadata, and one for institutional repositories, or IRs. Uh, so an IR is often um, when a university has a place to put all their digital theses, so dissertations and other stuff. Sometimes it, they might include publications by faculty members as well. 
So these are often, it's really important that they can get harvested by something like a, a broader national organization and that they have all that citation information right. ready to use. So we've got, you know, working groups who've been talking for a while about making a lot of progress with um, like the kind of content type and metadata that we have right. out of the box for Islandora because right now we don't have some of the fields that they would be needing. Another thing that is kind of been developed within the community are modules for embargoing content. So a lot of times, you know, you cannot release this until six months from now, one year from now, whatever. And so you will keep it private or hidden somehow, embargoed, and then release it a certain date. Another way that embargoes can be active is if you only want to allow a certain IP range access to your content. And so there's a kind of contributed, it's not part of core Islandora, but it's developed by the Islandora community module that can do that. So for fear of opening up a whole can of worms, something just popped into my head. So I'm going to try and sure. contain this conversation. It sounds like with, with the harvesting of, of data yeah. uh, that you mentioned a second ago, I couldn't help but think about schema.org mm-hmm. and the schema.org blueprints module. Right. And it seems like there could be some, some cross-pollination here. Where, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah, where Islandora... So I, I guess my first question is when... Islandora kind of, uh, or when the when the Islandora community creates these the, these content types and these media types with all of their various metadata fields, was the the schema derived from or with influence of schema.org at all? It was actually de- devised our what we call island uh, repository item. Um, it's our content type with the full, like, big suite of metadata. Um, it was de- devised so that people could migrate stuff from Islandora 7, which used a different, like, a, a library-based metadata format called MODS, M-O-D-S. Because of that, there's a lot of, it looks like, you know, repeated fields. Oh, okay. We've got about five different date fields, whether it's date created, date issued, copyright date, et cetera. And so they don't necessarily map to the schema.org stuff, Mm -hmm. but what we do have is an RDF mapping that takes them into JSON-LD. Oh, okay. So basically the same. So we are eventually putting out JSON-LD. It might not be in the same way. So that JSON-LD then can populate a Fedora repository, could populate a triple store if you have BlazeGraph or something else set up, and can be read and harvested. And we also have a module, again, developed by somebody in the Islandora community, but not owned by Islandora, that's called REST OAIPMH. So OAIPMH is a protocol for harvesting that I know like the library and archives in Canada uses to get the theses that we put on in our institutional repository. And so we can use either a template ba- and views-based mapping or this RDF mapping uh, in order to populate the material that can be seen through the OAI PMH protocol. Okay. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so bottom line is this data can, you know, there are, there is a way to make this data easily harvestable. Oh yeah. Like we make it to share. That's, that's why most libraries, archives, galleries, and museums are in this. How many sites do you have an idea of, of how many organizations are using Islandora? Oh, I want to say like 150 sites. Wow, okay. I'm not sure if that counts like institutions having 
multiple sites. I mean, well, I don't think that matters. There's all, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, there are many worldwide. Yeah, we have a contingent in Europe as well. And we used to do, so we used to do in-person camps about twice a year, one in North America and one in Europe. Uh, we kind of stopped doing that during the pandemic and we're trying to figure out how to start up again with what kinds of, what kinds of events we want, digital or in-person. Well, this has been great. Very enlightening for me personally. I've, I've learned a lot. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and and sharing uh, your knowledge and the story behind Islandora. And I hope that we get some some folks more involved in the Islandora community. Great. Well, thanks for having me on here. This has been really fun. Thanks, Rosie. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Drupal Easy podcast. Don't forget to check out all of our long-form Drupal training courses at DrupalEasy.com. And stay tuned for the next episode of the podcast, where I will be talking with Matt Glomman about PHP Stan and some other really cool stuff that he's been working on.